0: Thank you for joining us today at Zoe Community Church. And, um, I want to welcome you this afternoon, especially if you're new or visiting for the first time. And for those regular members, we're happy to hear, I'm happy to hear to, uh, we're happy to have you here also. And so if you haven't met me, my name is Vin and I'm one of the elders in training. And my wife is Lita. We have four kids, Josiah, Nathan, Ellie, and Caleb. This week, we'll continue our summer series entitled, Stories That Teach. We'll be diving into the parables found in the book of Luke, and as we look through the text today, I hope we can see how the Lord can be teaching us, and that we would really follow and obey his word. So with that, if you can, please open your Bibles today to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, as we come before you and come before your word, Lord, as you speak tenderly but firmly to us, we ask that as we come before you, Lord, that our hearts would be open, allowing these words to penetrate the veneer of our lives, to come into our heart, to plant a seed within us, to transform us to uncover in us anything that we are unable to see. As we come before the text and your word and your presence today, Father, help us to see the nearness of who you are and what you offer in Christ. That we have a treasure, Father, beyond measure. Lord, transform us. Help us to think, Lord, about what you have for us today, and that we would examine our lives, our hearts, and our desires, Father, and submit ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord, and lift these things up in your Son's name. Amen. See, the past few weeks have been the dog days of summer because it's hot, and that's almost anything anyone could talk about lately. So if you've been outside, everyone can understand why it's so refreshing to have a cold drink. See, I know when my kids forget their slushies in the car and they come back out, right, it's melted and it's all warm. It's just not as refreshing because it's lukewarm. See, the idea of lukewarm also applies to our attitudes. When something doesn't interest us, for instance, I've resisted as much as I can feeling this way, but my excitement for those Marvel movies just don't seem to garner the same type of hype or excitement that it's had, that's, that it's had in the past. See, and this idea of lukewarm also is found in the Bible, in terms of our Christian walk. The phrase comes from the book of Revelation, when Jesus is writing to the church of Laodicea. And in this this letter, Jesus calls out to church for their lukewarmness. And often this is applied to a person who lacks devotion or commitment towards following Christ. But have you ever thought about the reason or why Jesus calls them lukewarm? Lukewarm. Jesus actually tells us in Revelation 3, 17, this is what it says. For you, meaning the church of Laodicea, say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But not realizing that you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. See, they were lukewarm because their security was in the riches of this world, and not in Christ. How could they think that they were doing so well, but just be so wrong? They failed to see the danger of living with one foot in the world and one foot towards heaven. So even though this church was rich, their focus on wealth kept them from being the type of church that they should have been. So let me ask you a question today. Could it be that our focus on wealth and possessions is also keeping us from being the type of Christian that we should be? As we look at our text today, we need to consider how our attitude towards our possessions should shape how we live as believers. So for our text today, we'll break it up into three points. The priority, the plan, the purpose. Let's jump into it. Point one, the priority. The priority. So in the middle of his profound teaching to the disciples, Jesus is interrupted by a man. Remember that Jesus has been encouraging his disciples about the seriousness of their faith and because of the persecution that will soon be coming. So what this man yells out appears to come out from left field. His off-the-cuff and irrelevant concern makes you wonder if he's even been listening to anything Jesus has been saying at all. And in that moment, this man's thoughts were preoccupied with something he felt was far more important than what Jesus had to say. See, if you ever taught, then you've experienced this. Right, for parents or teachers, you think your kids, they're understanding and they're processing something. And what you're saying, they're, they're processing what you're saying, and then they raise their hand. You know, you call on them, hoping to pro- provide that moment of clarification for the topic, just to hear them say, Hey man, can I can I go to the bathroom? Or is it snack time yet? Right, so be encouraged. Right? It's not just you. It's happening here, even to our Lord Jesus Christ. The matter at hand is a dispute between two brothers over an inheritance. These two brothers must have been present for the man to ask openly for Jesus to help him. So at this time in Jewish culture, if there was a family issue or dispute, it would be a common practice for someone to ask a rabbi to intervene. And this makes sense. Because rabbis knew the law, they're wise, and they had authority to decide. But think about what's happening here for just a moment. He states, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. See, this man was in the presence of Jesus And he could have asked Jesus about anything. But instead, he tells Jesus to settle the score. There were likely relational issues happening between the two brothers that have led to this point, And surely, Jesus could have helped. But he doesn't ask. See, rather, he enlisted Jesus to help. Because he's not interested in getting a fair trial, but he hoped that a decision would be made in his favor. And in this roundabout way, this man was basically asking Jesus for money. But Jesus denies his request for help. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? See, at this time, sensing this man's misplaced priorities, he turns this interruption into a teaching opportunity for the disciples. So shifting from the brothers and to the crowds... Verse 15 tells us, he said to them, take care and be on guard. And what's interesting here is these two phrases serve as a double imperative, telling us to take care and to be on guard. These imperatives, they're commands to be obeyed by those who would hear. And so the phrase take care, as translated here in the ESV, I think actually loses a little bit of force or power or weight because it's not really a common phrase that we hear today. See, I think it could be helpful if we just look at how other translations use it for just a moment. Take care is translated as watch out in the NIV and, in the, in the, and the NET. And in the NLT, it uses the phrase, beware. So we are to watch out, beware, and be on guard. Both phrases are meant to work together. We must watch out in order to identify the problem, if we're to be on guard and have any defense against it. The reason is that this problem is not always easy to spot or detect. right? If you think about this in terms of the military, if there's an enemy hoping to penetrate our defenses through stealth or, decep- or, or deception, see, the greater the danger, the greater the concern. So without proper awareness to catch this danger, we run the risk of being compromised. So, what is so important that we have a double imperative to apply to our lives? Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. And so, let's be concrete here in order to get a better grasp of coveting. Coveting affects all aspects of our lives, not just money. We need to be on guard because it's a subtle sin and not easily detected within ourselves. And when coveting takes root in our hearts, our motives and decisions can become cloudy. The root word for coveting is pleonexia. This word, it conveys the idea of this unquenchable desire to possess something that belongs to others. Basically, a disproportionate longing for what is not ours. And when we look back at the text, isn't that what this brother is doing? This brother, he had this disproportionate de- desire for his inheritance, for this inheritance. Right? His desire it was so strong, he disregarded what might, th- what he disregarded what uh, what this might do to his family. He disregarded the emotional and relational fallout that this might, of what might happen. We've all heard stories about siblings that bicker in battle. Each wants what is valuable that their parents have left behind. See, and these battles leave a wake of bad feelings and broken relationships that could persist for years. See, his warning is to beware of coveting because it can affect all of us. If the first half of verse 15 gives us a warning, then the second half reorients us with a principle. For one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What we have in this world is not everything. The word for life there, the Greek word, it's not just bios or living but zoe right the name of our church zoe is meant to convey the idea of having fullness of life that we possess because of god to have zoe means that we're un- we're able to experience the abundant life now and in the life to come this is a hallmark of a child of god because we have a relationship with jesus christ Jesus confronts an idea this brother wasn't even thinking about. That in light of eternity, his riches were far less important than he thinks. He was focused on the wrong priorities. You know, as many of you guys know, I'm an eye doctor, and uh, my day usually involves diagnosing and helping people with their vision. And so I remember this case when a man walked into the office, and he says, You know, I can't see, and, you know, can you help me get a pair of glasses so I could see better? And, you know, I'm talking to this guy, and a lot of his story just didn't make sense. It's like I'm listening to it, and it's just bizarre. He's seeing fine one day, and then suddenly can't stop seeing. But parts of his vision is okay. It's like spider webs, but actually he's okay. And after waiting a night, he decides, you know what? It's, It's time to come in. Now after talking with him, there wasn't anything remarkable about his history. And actually, just looking at him, he seems like a normal guy. However, when I looked into the back of his eye, his retina, what I found was anything but normal. Right in the center of his vision, where it should be clear, was a large area of bleeding. And this is suggestive of something more complicated. See, at this time, I tried to explain to him that his poor vision is no longer an optics issue, but rather he's having a medical issue. See, you can't see because your eyes are unhealthy. No pair of glasses is going to help him because the structures that help him see they're sick. In fact, they might even be dying. And you know, as I'm kind of reviewing here with this man, I'm going over his issue and the importance, hey man, you gotta go see your doctor, you know, because I care that he might go blind or that worse, something might happen to him systemically. And as we're wrapping up, I ask him, hey, so do you have any questions about today? You know, and to my surprise, he asked me, so where do I go to get glasses? See, this man was focused on the wrong thing. He thought that the glasses were going to cure his vision, but he didn't register to him that he's dealing with something far worse and far more serious. The real disease was not affecting only his eyes, but his entire body. See, it's hard for him to perceive the problem, because it's not tangible, and he couldn't see it. And without being careful, we can fail to see that coveting affects our hearts. This brother thought his problem was not getting an inheritance, but he failed to see the far greater problem of greed and covetousness. For us here and now, today and in our lives, we need to be on guard against coveting. It can mask and deceive us, Causing us to drift away from the true and real needs in life. It's relentless. Using every ob- advantage and opportunity to take root in our hearts. Right, In some ways, advertisers, they understand this, they know this. Focusing their ads, telling us that we'd be living the good life if we just had this one extra thing. We need to be continually evaluating areas of our hearts that are prone to facing temptation. Coveting is subtle, but it's also dangerous because it's a root sin. It can lead to other sins. That means that it's a heart issue, a sin of the heart. And to add to the difficulty, coveting affects each person in different ways. Types of ways. It comes in waves, the intensity varies, and its form can look very different. See, time and time again, instead of being content with God's good gift and grace in our lives, we raise our displeasure and say, I'd really be content. If only I had this one thing. And as our discontentment grows and takes root, it can become who we are. And to some, this becomes all they can think about, and it dominates their life. And so to speak, the issue becomes the sun our whole life revolves around. We must be diligent and persistent to fight this well. We must remember and consider the principle that life is more than our possessions as we examine, evaluate, and take the litmus tests of our spiritual lives. Friends, life is more than our possessions. If we're to live this out as saints, we must keep our gaze on the greater treasure that we often incorrectly value. By God's grace, there's a place for us to enjoy God's blessing in our lives. But all too often, we make the things of this world more important than they deserve. Point two, the plan. At this time, Jesus further addresses coveting with a parable. You know, there's an interesting contrast as Jesus speaks to the crowds. As his ministry is happening on the road, remember many of his followers had left family and home to follow him. This parable is talking about a rich man, but most of his followers were likely poor. So let's consider this. Or put ourselves in that situation, right? Those who are listening to what Jesus was teaching might have thought, look, I don't have much possessions. So this just doesn't apply to me, and I'm off the hook. Perhaps they justified any need to guard their hearts because this principle doesn't apply to them now. They'll try to remember it for the future. So Jesus elaborates his point because he cares for their souls. He wants them to know that covetousness does not stop at any socioeconomic situation. That for those who are lacking and desire to be rich, Jesus is showing that even the wealthy can be tripped up by possessions because coveting can affect them in a different way. As we look at the text, there's something powerful about this story because it seems natural. This is a common man, maybe even reminds you of someone you know. In a sense, we all understand if you're successful, these are things that you do. His business was booming. This meant expansion. And once the contractors are done, if everything goes according to plan, be set for life. So what did he miss? This man, he experienced something called a bumper crop, which means an unusually abundant harvest. And this reminds me of something my brother shared with me when the fields in California went through something called a super bloom. He went, and in his phrase, this is what he says, the flowers, they just went on and on and on for miles. See, at the onset, it was the land of the rich man that produced plentifully. It should be noted here that the subject that produced plentifully was not the rich man, but rather his land. As we consider what this man received for all intents and purpose, this was a gift, even an inheritance that required no effort on his part. The business was suddenly booming. See, this reminds me of those feel-good YouTube videos when uh, people go into a small mom-and-pop shop and decide, hey, we're just going to buy up everything. Right? And as this is happening, the owners, they're rightly shocked. And so here, as someone dependent on the land, more than any other person, this rich man should have understood that you are at the mercy of the weather, or something external from you, because without the proper circumstances, there's no crops to harvest. What was the rich man's response? Notice how many times the man says I, and how many times he says my. Six and five, and that's a total of 11 times. In just a few verses, he talks about my crops, my barns, my grains, My goods. See, funny, there's no mention of God or those around him. All he could do was think about himself. See, this man's behavior is in direct contrast to the idea of God's providence, meaning God's care and provision for his creation. The rich man received gifts and forgot to thank the giver. And so his life had no reflection of God's blessing. At this point, what he stored up has given him the confidence to map out the rest of his life. In verse 19, he tells himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. To the world, this man is the picture and epitome of success. And in many ways, his plans, they don't seem half bad. But in verse 20, we see something unexpected. This inertia of his plans come to a screeching stop. God calls him a fool and says, this night, your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? To those who are listening, this was likely shocking. There's this abruptness and suddenness to Jesus' words. There's irony here. Because everything he owned could not be enjoyed. And it didn't add anything or extend his life. I mean, couldn't he just enjoy one more day? But here Jesus is showing this man's perspective. This man's perspective towards his possessions were wrong and incorrect. The text tells us those things he possess will no longer be his because his soul is required. The word requires here is a banking term that conveys the idea of accounting and a loan that's due. See, I I actually like how the NET and NIV translate the word. They use demand back and demand from. See, this man's soul is being demanded back because it's ultimately never his. What happened to this man was he confused ownership with stewardship. To this man, he thought his problem was how to store the crops, but his real dilemma was how to use it for God instead of hoarding it all for himself his plans became a reflection of his priorities. What he had in his possessions was basically on loan. And the time had come for him to give an account of all things under his care. And all these things he possessed were not his, not even his life. And in looking at this man's plans, God asked him a rhetorical question: "All these things you've stored up for yourself, whose will they be?" What the man thought gave him security. Worth and happiness suddenly became worthless. Before God, everything he had to show for was like fool's gold. There's no true or lasting value. See, none of what he prepared will be able to go with him after death. What's more sad is that he had no relationship with God. This man was materially rich, but spiritually poor. The text doesn't say explicitly that he was condemned, but it's implied. He lived as if there was no God. And that's why God calls him a fool. The word fool means, the word for fool here does not mean a lack of intelligence or capability, because if we consider the man in the story, he seems very capable and successful. Rather, a fool is someone who is short sighted or lacking perspective. In his case, he was spiritually a fool. And just as the psalmist tells us, the fool says in his heart, There's no God. And that is how the man is living in regards to his possessions. Remember, it was the land that produced abundantly. So the source of his blessing was God, but he failed to acknowledge that. The land that produced abundantly was a gracious gift that should have produced worship, praise, and appreciation, but instead it revealed his priorities. The man was self-absorbed with his wealth. In the end, everything he planned was worthless because it had no eternal value without God. You know, when I was a kid, one fond memory I had was when my dad, every so often, would give my brother and I a yellow stick of juicy fruit chewing gum. Now, if you can recall the packaging, we liked the yellow one because that was the sweeter one. And in one pack of Juicy Fruit, there would be five pieces of gum. And you know, for some reason, this memory is just etched into my mind. But my dad, he decides to entrust me with a whole pack of Juicy Fruit gum. And as a young kid, this was the jackpot. This was my bumper crop. And for me, there were no more barns needed to be built. Because that pack had five pieces of gum, my dad told me that since he's going away, to make sure to make it last. Just eat one piece a day. Now, I remember immediately after he left, I ate that first stick of gum. And like any gum, the flavor just doesn't last. So in that moment, I thought to myself, let me relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And so right there, I ate all five pieces of chewing gum. Now, what I didn't realize was that my dad would be back after only about 20 minutes and maybe stepping through the door and probably seeing me with that giant ball of gum in the side of my mouth, he goes, so what did you do with the gum? "Uh, I, I ate some. How many? Of course, I lied to him, and I said, one piece. But he knew. Oh, my dad knew. So my dad says, hey, you know, actually, I'm chewing one piece of gum right now, so maybe we can just compare. So he pulls out his one piece of gum. He says, go ahead, let me see yours. See, in in that moment, I knew that I was caught red-handed because to my horror, my piece of gum was so much larger than my dad's. See, the things we hold on to in this world are like those sticks of juicy fruit. They don't last. Our possessions can't be the things that we hold on to considering eternity. So here lies the danger and difficulty of possessions and wealth. The stuff we possess is mistaken as ours and not gifts from the Lord to be used for his glory. I could have shared a piece of gum with my brother, but I didn't. But looking back, my relationship with my brother is a lot longer lasting than any piece of gum. Our wealth promises us a sense of independence and power or worth that we can trust in, but it doesn't last. It's a house of cards, more fragile than we think. As believers, we must see God's providence, meaning that he is the source of all of our blessings. We love the gifts, but forget the giver. And when we act this way, we're no different from the world because we're basically behaving like functional atheists when it comes to our possessions. We acknowledge God with our lips, but our behaviors and our actions are far from the Lord. Wealth and possessions in and of themselves are not evil. It's what we do with our possessions and wealth that reveal our heart. More often than not, our love for the world and its appetizers of enjoyment take up so much of our time. There's just little room for the main course of fellowship with God. So without slowing down and evaluating our motives, we're susceptible to going through life with so many activities without, without considering the fallout of our spiritual lives. If the man in the parable made plans without God, it should be low-hanging fruit that our wealth should involve God and the work of the kingdom. That's why the value of our possessions must be weighed against the magnitude of the gospel. And when we do this, the value of any earthly commodity should pale in comparison to the surpassing value of our relationship with God through Christ. And I think that's why having a plan to give is a good idea. Any plan that doesn't include God can run the risk of going off course. Having a plan is proactive in guarding our hearts against coveting because we can be deceived. What the world offers is appealing. But as children of God, we must look different. We're not functional atheists, but stewards of God's gifts. Friends, there's a time that we're required to give an account of what we've been given. For many of us here and now, we're too busy meddling with the trivial pleasures of this world when we're offered a far greater treasure that is secured for us in the gospel. So just to review, we've gone through the priority, the plan, and now let's look at the purpose. The purpose. See, Jesus takes a step back and offers an admonition to those who would hear. Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich, towards God. In many ways, the brother is seeking inheritance and the man in the parable were two in the same. They missed the point of life. Both found themselves grasping at a treasure that didn't last and was not rich towards God. Here, Jesus is using contrasting ideas to summarize his point. And these ideas serve even as questions to those hearers that would prompt them to think about. And we should too. See, where in my life am I being too focused on my possessions? Which ways am I so focused on building bigger barns? When was the last time I used my resources to help someone else in need? And almost like the interaction of Samuel and David, some in the crowds, as they heard this story, realized that they too are this man. When this happens, We must allow Christ's word to be a mirror to evaluate and to examine our own hearts. If being a fool is the negative idea, then we have a positive. If this is the danger, then there is security. If there's a disease, then we have a cure. And Jesus speaking to them and to us, caring for their souls offers a remedy. We are to be rich towards God. The purpose of life is more than what this world offers because it's about our relationship with God. Do not be like this fool laying treasures for yourself, but be rich towards God. So what does that mean? Being rich towards God means that God is our highest treasure. Here, Jesus is helping his disciples see that you can be very rich according to the world, but spiritually poor before God. And he's also saying, you don't have to be rich in this world to be rich towards God. We must hold loosely the things of this world and hold tightly to the promises of God. If we're to put this in gospel terms, we need to have faith. Because only in Christ are we spiritually rich. So we must flee from the love of this world and come before the cross. See, consider someone who had great wealth. This rich, young ruler. See, this man, he comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to have eternal life? And after insisting he's been good and that he's followed the commands Jesus, knowing his heart, tells him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich jesus seeing that he be- had seeing that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god his love and attachment to his possessions held a certain power that stopped him from following jesus Jesus asked him to sell all that he had and to give to the poor but he just couldn't do it instead of valuing his relationship with Christ he held on to the riches of this world instead of allowing his faith to be worked out by helping the poor and giving away his possessions He showed little trust in God's providence for his life. And as we think about being rich towards God today, the first thing to consider is that we should not presume that we have time later to be right with God for those coveting or anxious for the things of this world, be it security, fulfillment, or success, all these things can distract and dull our urgency to seek God. We need to humbly see that life goes much faster than we realize. And no one knows the day their life will be required or demand it back from them. Now, a second thing to consider. As believers, if this danger of possessions is clear and present, then how does a child of God handle wealth and work this out in their faith? I mean, this is a real question because we all have stuff. And the remedy is simple is that we would have a spirit of generosity and a regular practice of giving. The issue of treasure ultimately is not a measure of amount, but our attitude. The issue of treasures ultimately is not a measure of amount, but our attitude. We need to see God's providence in all things. For believers, being rich towards God means that we see the lordship of Christ over all things, even our money and possessions. He's the source, the means, and the ends of what we have. If he isn't Lord of all, then Jesus is not Lord at all. But this isn't how the world sees things. See, worldliness tells us that we can have everything the world offers and add a little bit of spirituality. If we're to be rich towards God, then our attitudes as believers should be different from the world. See, think about this. Money invested in the kingdom of God is the only money you'll ever see in eternity. If we want to consider a divine windfall, just consider the compounding interest of an eternal investment. You know, as I've studied the past few weeks, you know, this is something that hits home to me. And even before sharing with you guys, please be aware that I have to come to terms with what God's word is also doing in my own heart. You know, I'm not up here to cast the first stone, but to evaluate and to examine my own heart. The world and reason tells us that we should hang on to what we have. And those things we hold on to, they tell us often that we can't live without them. And so not if, but when this happens, we need to come back to the cross and see the riches of God's grace. When reflecting on value and the gospel and balancing our wealth and generosity, I think C.S. Lewis highlights this principle well. So, this is what he says I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those in the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it's too small there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot, because our commitment to giving excludes them. See, being generous essentially means sacrificing our own desires to help others. This is hard because despite our level of income, we should consider how we can be generous. See, this would look differently for each person. I remember talking to a brother one time, and, and I was quite encouraged. Because he told me that he was just in an okay financial situation. But what he hoped to still do was that he would increase his tithe each year. And as he was talking about life and the other things his family still wanted, it didn't bother him to just wait to just get those things a little later. Those things his family wanted weren't the top priority. Giving back to God was. See, another example I heard recently was from an older couple, and I thought it was completely practical. Right, The congregation at the time they were going to, or the church that they were going to, was considering a church building. And when the dust had settled, they realized they needed to raise a certain amount of money. The couple, they're on a budget, but they still wanted to help and to contribute. So they decided that they would sacrifice and decide to withhold gifts for a season, Christmas or Birthdays so that they would have an opportunity to take part and to help. Those gifts for the families weren't the top priority, but giving back to the work of ministry was. There's joys and pleasures that we have to deny in order to be generous. And this might mean delaying a trip we plan to go on. Skip eating out at a certain restaurant, or not drive as nice of a car as we want for a season. There's a tension in fighting and combating covetousness because it's an issue of our heart. In one sense, we have freedom but any standard that we try to establish becomes legalistic. See, understand, I know that this is hard. There's real struggles, obligations, and the unexpected cost of life. But remember, God is a good father who knows and cares for you far greater than you think. That in light of eternity, deploying our wealth for the work of ministry is much more worthy and much more valuable than we actually realize. See, at this point in our story, I wonder what this brother was even thinking. You know, if we zoom out to look at the rest of chapter 12, we see that Jesus is encouraging his disciples not to be anxious because life is more than what you eat. It's more than what you have, what you eat, or what you wear because we have God. And that's our great hope. A restored relationship with the almighty God not the things of this world. See, it's unclear what happened between the brothers and their inheritance. But it's clear we have a decision about an inheritance being offered to us today. See, friends, when the fall happened in the Garden of Eden, not only did sin enter the world, but a broken and hostile relationship occurred between man and God. Spiritual poverty bankrupt all of us before a holy, perfect, and righteous God. So at this time, here and this afternoon, you too face a dilemma if you've never repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That without repentance, without faith, without forgiveness of sins, we're ultimately strangers separated from God, awaiting the wrath to come. See, everyone without Christ has a debt of sin that must be paid. But God, being gracious, has given us hope. Unlike the selfish brother who wanted to take, the selfless Son of God, came to give us life. Unlike the brother's broken family relationship, we are offered a chance to be heirs, adopted and brought into the family of God. Because Jesus' death has paid the ransom that redeems us. There are heavenly blessings secured for us in eternity, but only if we're a child of God. Friends, think about your priorities, the plans you have laid out, and consider what this might say is the purpose of your life. See, we must acknowledge that by our strength and in our flesh, our motives, they can deceive us. So we need help from the Holy Spirit and one another so that we would see the goodness of God. All right, so if we circle back to the church of Laodicea. See, this church was condemned for believing that they were rich and just having it all together. However, Jesus wrote another letter to a lesser-known church to commend them. In fact, Jesus has nothing negative to say. And it ought to cause us to ask why. This is what Revelation 2 says. To the church of Smyrna, he writes this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The idea of being poor, but rich towards God, is a paradox of the Christian life. See, this goes against what our eyes see and what our hearts want to believe. Right? Of those who have and possess abundance, you would expect greater, a greater sense of worship and faithfulness. You'd expect greater generosity and willingness to use their resources. But rather than experiencing an overflow of spiritual vitality that results in joy that is multiplied, material wealth may actually cloak our spiritual poverty. If God's word is a mirror to us, then we need to ask ourselves as a church, Zoe, what we will do with the blessings that we're given? With every blessing, will we keep for ourselves, patting ourselves on the back and forgetting the providence of God? Or will we rightly turn our prosperity into an opportunity to do the work of ministry and to be a blessing for others. If we're to be faithful and rich towards God, we must consider what this church of Smyrna rightly understood they possess. That in light of their difficulty and their poverty, they possess a relationship With God Himself. Let's pray.